Hey everyone, we are really excited to be kicking off this series, which is a continuation of our Unions and the Mob Reputation versus Reality series, but we're not doing the Teamsters, we are instead doing the International Longshoremen's Association, and this goes over a little bit of an overview, it's kind of just an intro episode of the history between the ILA and the formation of the ILWU, a bit about Harry Bridges and King Joe Ryan, as he is often referred to. And if you'd like to have the whole thing and support us all the way through, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way that we get funding to do these really cool series. And so we really appreciate it if you could drop us five bucks a month it goes a long way towards making the show possible. If you can't afford that, jump in the Discord, message one of the admins, and we would be happy to hook you up. As we know, times can be tough at any point. Anyway, we hope that you all enjoy this little preview in solidarity. Addressing a crowd of assembled striking workers, Bridges said, quote, When agreements conflict with labor solidarity, agreements must go. End quote. <laughs> and the contrast with the narrow, self-centered unionism of King Joe Ryan could not possibly be more stark. I mean, it's the polar opposites. Yeah, it's like he would he's one of those kind of guys who's like, oh, the contract is everything. It's above all aspects of, of you know, struggle. You know, the, if we break the contract, then we are not acting, you know, in good faith because mm-hmm. the company is definitely acting in good faith all the time. You know, that kind of that kind of nonsense. Right. And, and that's like one of the one of the insidious things about like the NLRA that it is actually really difficult, I think, you know, to get a it's very hard to build a very simplistic narrative, I think, when you di- really get into the history of it, because on the, on the one hand, it absolutely did make building unions easier, which is vital. That's an it's an unalloyed good. It's great. But at the same time. It also forced union struggle largely into a box, a box that is far more uh, easy for the bosses to deal with than the very disruptive unionism prior to the NLRA. So this is one of those moments where you see like a transformation in consciousness of what unions are and a struggle over that because you have the rank and file, many of whom have gone through those early struggles in the 30s, whose understanding is the purpose of this union is to fight the bosses because the bosses are motherfuckers who aren't going to give us anything. (laughs) Whereas the thinking that they want to move it towards that, that it it eventually becomes is that again, that it's, it's a boardroom negotiation. It's the forces of labor and the forces of capital and they come together and they argue as reasonable folks and they come to an agreement and that compromise is that's the essence of democracy right there. You got different interests coming together and finding a place they can move forward. Yeah. We got hundreds of people agreeing with three people. That's democracy. (laughs) And the Roman Senate is smiling down on us from Roman heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and that's the thing, is, is, is the bureaucratized form of unionism created by the, the NLRA, and, and then, and of course, relatively copied around the social democratic European West, is really tricky because it puts you into these situations where the definition of a responsible union shifts from a union which puts the, the like, the needs of its membership first to a union which helps the boss enforce the contract. 
So that's really what they were looking for. Now, of course, most unions did not fall into that and did continue to fight for their members as and have continued to do so even through the major downturns. But that's always been their goal, to completely neuter the labor movement. And it's people like King Joe Ryan who have tried to help them move along in that direction. And so opposing him, of course, you have people like Henry Bridges, who was a strong advocate for industrial unionism. And immediately upon being elected head of the ILA's Pacific Coast Division, he launched a campaign to unionize warehouse workers who handled cargo unloaded from the West Coast docks. The March Inland, as it was called, further enraged business owners and also upset the traditional craft sensibilities of the ILA leadership. Expanding the unity of workers at critical logistic nodes from the ports to the warehouses was, from the perspective of wanting to build power for the whole working class, an obvious move. But it clashed with the narrow craft unionism of the AFL and put a target on Bridges' back. When it became clear that the international leadership of the ILA under Joe Ryan would never provide the support and resources necessary to continue to grow the union, Bridges advocated that the workers join the CIO. Just three years after the San Francisco general strike of 1934, the entire Pacific Coast division of the ILA, fully half its geographic area, voted to secede from the union and join the CIO under the new banner of the International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, the ILWU. Bridges would remain as president of the ILWU for the next 40 years, guiding it through the Red Scare, the expulsion of the ILWU from the CIO for its refusal to betray its communist members, and the apocal shift of longshore work to containerization. Throughout his tenure and continuing through to today, the ILWU has stood as a bastion of progressive, class struggle-based unionism fighting for a society where workers have control. It is so fucking impressive to be a communist leading a large national union and through the Red Scare and to be like, you know what? No, we're not purging any fucking members. I'm staying right where I am. I'm running this thing for four straight decades. And and just being so resilient in the face of what I'm sure was at that time, probably just an utterly relentless onslaught, both from conservatives and regular garden variety liberals. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and also, like, to I think what makes Bridges' tenure even more impressive is that unlike, say, a Daniel Tobin of the, the Teamsters, who was the president for 45 years, uh, there were actually democratic structures in place mm-hmm. in the ILWU because the, the early years of the Teamsters, there were not. There are now, thankfully. But the ILWU, since its formation has been based on rank-and-file democracy. So not only did Bridges remain as president for 40 years, he remained as president because the rank-and-file wanted him there, mm-hmm. which, which just demonstrates his effectiveness. No, he must have been a tyrant, okay? Those elections could not possibly have been... He forced them all to vote for him. <laughs> like <laughs> He brainwashed them. He put on one of those like old-timey like doctor mirrors and held up a spinning spiral with a... <laughs> <laughs> to just yeah, hypnotize I mean, people. It's very funny because you see the the parallel with like a lot of socialist national leaders where it's just like, oh, it turns out if you actually do things for your membership, they like you and they elect you again. 
I just can't help but remember some of the justifications for uh, awful CIA programs with the idea that the communists brainwash people when in reality, you know, solidarity and centering worker struggle is a very powerful weapon in, you know, showing people that there is a better world to be built. And then these fucking ghouls think that, oh, that's brainwashing. We need to hurt people. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. When you are a purveyor of misery and death and then people come along and they're like i'd like to stop misery and death it does kind of look like brainwashing to you i guess (laughs) well and it's it's also one of those things that just so cynical where you have you know people talking about how like they'll be like nicholas maduro is only president because he's been buying votes by building free housing for poor people I'm like, What's the job of a president? I'm like, isn't that what you're supposed to? Why well, isn't that what why people are supposed to vote for you? Because you do things that no, you're help supposed them? To, you're supposed to get predatory IMF loans for Central African countries. <laughs> why are you not on this page? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, it's it's one of those. It, it, these are like you know the things that really exemplify why we love the ILWU, why we are mm-hmm. unabashed partisans of it, uh, and have have really tried to highlight it as a, as a standout of union democracy and rank-and-file power throughout the history of the U.S. labor movement. But this is not a series about the ILWU. Aww. <laughs> While we hail the achievements <laughs> and steadfast dedication to the cause of the working class by that union, we are here to examine the history of the union they seceded from, the ILA. What made the ILA leadership so entrenched its corrupt rules so ironclad that despite over a century of outcry by rank-and-file workers, union democracy still seems out of reach. Why were workers on the West Coast able to shake off corrupt leaders and build a democratic, militant longshore union, but workers on the East Coast saw similar reform movements defeated? Why was organized crime so easily able to establish control on the docks, especially in New York City, And how has their involvement with the union shaped the fight for reform? Over the next several episodes, as we look through the story of the longshore organizing in the United States, we will do our best to answer these questions and try to separate the real, sordid history of corruption from the broad brush of allegation and innuendo from the corporate media. Longshore unions have long been attacked by the media and the ruling class more broadly as corrupt, lazy, even criminal organizations. Like ruling class attacks on other unions, such as the Teamsters, these attacks have been exaggerated and overgeneralized. However, even when viewed from a rigorous class perspective, the history of the ILA is troubling. Unlike the Teamsters, the UAW, and most other major unions in the United States, there has been no successful reform movement in the ILA. Following the secession of West Coast workers to the ILWU, The leadership of the ILA on the East Coast did face many challenges, but always managed to maintain their control of the docks. Meanwhile, with class collaborationist leadership cemented in place by a lack of internal democracy, corruption and even mob domination flourished in some locals, especially in New York City. Elia Kazan's film, On the Waterfront, made longshore unions the face of attacks by the ruling class and its media on the entire labor movement as being functionally just criminal fronts and shakedown rackets, abusing both companies and the rank-and-file workers. While this portrait was distorted in scope, there was sadly some small bits of truth scattered throughout the attempt to tar the whole movement with an overly broad brush. 
the leadership of the ILA, especially under King Joe Ryan, did in fact make deals with the mob as well as the major shipping firms, sacrificing the interests of the union's membership for the personal profit of leaders like Ryan and their patrons, both legitimate and criminal. And interestingly, even when there are situations where the union fucked up and they might have like associations with organized crime or they might have associations with the company that are, you know, inappropriate, it's never the fucking company getting scrutinized the same. Mm -hmm. Like they might have, you know, far more associations with organized crime. They are definitely the ones instigating the inappropriate relationships with the union. And yet the only organization we're supposed to think of as corrupt is the union. To some degree, we're supposed to think of the union, according to the media, as like corrupt and the mob as being like this funny little thing that happens in America. Yeah, (laughs) it's treated like it's a a force of nature. Like it's just part of the background environment. It's like... Mm -hmm. Oh man, it's a shame. New York got hit by a hurricane. Oh, it's a shame. This fish market got taken over by the mob. It's like those are those aren't the same thing. Yeah. Well, why are we why are we naturalizing organized crime and uh, and organized business crime as well for that matter and then trying to like alienate the idea of like workers having an organization (laughs) it's pretty politically motivated and you brought up though like what i think is is a very very critical point that is going to resurface over and over again in this series which is the way the media and our, our ruling class defines what organized crime even is let me tell you of the sailor harriet bridges is his name an honest union leader that the bosses tried to frame. He left home in Australia to sail the seas around. Sailed across the ocean to come to Frisco Town. There was only a company union and then the bosses had their way. Us workers had to stand in line for a lousy buggy day. When up spoke Harry Bridges said us workers must get wise. Our wives and kids will starve to death if we don't get organized. Oh, the FBI is worried and the bosses, they are scared. They can't deport six million men, they know. And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the seas. Fight for Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO. We built a big bonfire around the Madsen lines that night. We threw their faint books in it and we said we're gonna fight You've got to pay a living wage or we're gonna take a walk We told it to the bosses but the bosses wouldn't talk We said there's only one way left to get that contract signed And all around the waterfront we threw our picket line They called it Bloody Thursday, the fifth day of July a hundred men were wounded and two were left to die Oh, the FBI is worried and the bosses, they are scared They can't deport six million men, they know And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the seas We'll fight for Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO Now that was seven years ago, and in the time since then Harry's organized thousands more and made them union men. We've got to try to bribe him, the shipping bosses said. And if he won't accept a bribe, we'll say that he's a red. 
bosses brought a trial to deport him overseas. But the judge said, he's an honest man, I've got to set him free. So they brought another trial, and to free him was the plan. But along with Harry Bridges stands every working man. Oh, the FBI's worried, and the bosses, they are scared. They can't deport six million men, they know. Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO Oh, the FBI's were